Moments before jumping into the narrow rocky chute, Dave, my laconic guide who has skied these steep mountains in Taos, New Mexico for almost 40 years, each run like a pulsing vein in his own body, warned me. If you fall with your head facing downhill, you have just seconds to get yourself turned around and stick in your boots, your hands, your poles, whatever you can into the snow to stop your fall. Otherwise you will slide all the way down and it will not end well. Until he offered me this sobering advice, I'd actually not been that afraid, trusting my skill and my mostly good judgment. We'd hiked up from the top of Lift 2 in Taos Ski Valley, a fairly vigorous 20-minute hike in ski boots, to the top of a run called Stauffenberg. I'd wanted to attempt this run not just for the personal challenge and satisfaction, but also because I had become captivated by the story of the name of this steep, narrow descent. Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg was one of the four German officers who attempted to assassinate Hitler in July 1944 and end the brutal Nazi regime. All four of them have runs named after them. Stauffenberg, Oster, Treskau and Fabian. I found myself so enamoured of the history of this ski mountain, founded in 1955 by Ernie Blake, born Ernst Hermann Bloch, a German Jew who grew up skiing in Switzerland and who escaped Nazi Germany in 1938. During and immediately after the war, he worked for the US military intelligence as an interrogator of Nazis with the code name Ernie Blake, which he kept after the war. He had the dream to create his own ski mountain and the drive and tenacity to see it realized. In its fulfillment, Blake honoured some of those who stood up in the face of evil with formidable moral courage and brought that honour and that history to this mountain. The failed operation to eliminate that demonic dictator and his vile vision was called Operation Valkyrie, whose name also lives on in a bowl and a gulch. Some of you may have seen the film Valkyrie, with Tom Cruise playing Stauffenberg. And now here I was, all these years later, a few weeks after my own journey, where I stood outside the Reichstag in Berlin, had my heart ripped open as I sat for hours in Auschwitz-Birkenau and Theresienstadt, weeping for the victims and for humanity's capacity for evil. Standing in skis at the top of this formidable run, my heart racing, not just from the exertion of the hike, but from the anxiety of visualizing my body sliding endlessly on this snow and rock and ice. I think of Ernie Blake, of Stauffenberg, of all whose hearts pulse with courage for what is right and resist, standing up, standing up. I overcome my fear and skied pretty well, I think down that chute to the safety of flatter ground, aware of the irony that I was not saving the world from tyrants, but enjoying the great privilege of skiing in New Mexico. 
Last November, just a couple of weeks after the horrific shooting at the Tree of Life synagogue in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood of Pittsburgh, I was in Warsaw, Krakow, Auschwitz, Berlin, Prague and Theresienstadt, all for the first time as part of my sabbatical journey, visiting some of the places that most clearly define the brutality and darkness to which humanity can plunge. My last day in the beautiful city of Prague coincided with a close friend from London, Jewish historian John Boyd, being there with a few hours to spare. He was there giving a presentation on anti-Semitism to the Czech Parliament. And when we met, he said, will you come to a church with me? I'd already seen most, if not all, of the city's magnificent synagogues, which had been cynically preserved by Hitler as a future museum of the lost Jewish race. We walked across the Charles Bridge to the Orthodox Church of St. Cyril and Methodius. The first thing you see when you get there is the year 1942 as a red mosaic in the sidewalk in front of the church's crypt. This crypt, now a museum, was the hiding place of Jan Kubis and Josef Gabczyk and seven other paratroopers from what was then Czechoslovakia's exiled army. Most of you will likely never have heard of these names, Kubis and Gabčík, but I can assure you practically every Czech schoolchild has because they are national heroes. They were the leaders of Operation Anthropoid, training in Britain and parachuted into the countryside outside Prague for the mission to assassinate SS Obergruppenführer Reinhard Heydrichd, acting Reichsprotector of the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia. A popular book about this operation and its aftermath is called HHHH, which are the initials of a phrase in Nazi Germany, Himmler's Hirn heist Heydrich. Himmler's brain is called Heydrich. He was one of the worst Nazis of them all, ruthless and cruel. Anthropoid didn't exactly go to plan, but Heydrich did end up dying from a piece of metal that entered his body after his car was blown up by the Plan B grenade. The Nazi rampage and manhunt that ensued was obscene, brutal and chilling. The paratroopers were given sanctuary in the crypt of that church where I was that day and you can see the bullet holes from Nazi machine gun fire when they finally tracked down the hiding place after a tip-off. The Nazis ordered the local fire department to fill the crypt with water from their fire hoses to drown any survivors from the gunfire, not knowing that they had actually all taken cyanide pills rather than be captured or killed by their cancerous Nazi evil. Thousands of people visit this site and Czech schoolchildren learn the story of courage and resistance, of standing up. The Nazi occupation in that region was brutal for everyone, and Czechs today, for Czechs today, the heroes of the story are definitely the ones that resisted, not the perpetrators of the genocide. I had a similar experience in Poland, 
as I watched hundreds and hundreds of Polish schoolchildren walking around the Polin Museum in Warsaw learning of the vibrant thousand-year history of Jews in their country, a third of the population before the war. Two days later, I saw even larger numbers learning about their brutal destruction in the gas chambers of Auschwitz. Young non-Jewish Poles went out of their way to host me and guide me as we all confronted the horrors of the past together. Bartek, a filmmaker in Warsaw, felt like a brother by the end of my few days there. Bartek, who was working with my oldest friend Jonathan on a film about Auschwitz, told me that he has been to that darkest of places almost a hundred times and each time it rips him up to his core. He connected me to Lukasz, who picked me up from my hotel in Krakow at 5.30 a.m. and drove me to Auschwitz, where he and Bartek had arranged for Pavel, a brilliant academic journalist and official guide, to take me into that hell before it opened to the public. I saw the Arbeit macht frei sign emerging into light in the newly risen sun. Lukasz, my driver, stayed in the area for the whole day, waiting meeting me at Birkenau, Auschwitz II, and then taking me into the town of Wojewinsim, just outside the camp, where he'd acquired the key to the old Jewish cemetery of this town that, like so many other Polish towns, had a reasonably sized Jewish population before the war. Lukasz took me to the recently rediscovered and refurbished old synagogue, now a museum and cafe. At the end of that exhausting day, I wanted to pay Lukasz, but he was offended at the suggestion, explaining what a deep honour it was for him to take a rabbi to these places, and it was, and was it possible, he asked me, to join me at any services. He came to the Friday night service and Shabbat dinner at the Krakow JCC, craving, yearning for connection to Jewish people and Jewish heritage. Both he and Bartek revealed to me later that they had both recently discovered that one of their grandfathers was Jewish. I was in that country for such a short time and I am fully aware of the nationalist Polish government's law criminalizing public claims that Poland was complicit in Nazi war crimes and their attempt to rewrite history. But I am also aware of Poles desperately wanting to confront and reconcile the trauma of their past. Three million non-Jewish Poles as well as three million Jews were murdered by the Nazis, so Poles were victims too. For many of us in the Jewish community there is a very strong desire to perpetuate the narrative that all Poles drink in anti-Semitism with their mother's milk, that they always have and always will hate us. There is no doubt that many Poles were complicit or silent, but some scholars estimate that over one million Poles acted in some way to save and protect Jews, including many doctors, like Dr. Eugenius Lajowski, known as the Polish Schindler, who saved 8,000 Polish Jews in Rozwadow from deportation to death camps by simulating a typhus epidemic. Over 6,000 Poles have been recognized by Yad Vashem as righteous among the nations. The Polish resistance was one of the largest in Europe and thousands of Poles were murdered by the Nazis for saving and hiding Jews. Like 
Klaus von Stauffenberg, Jan Kubis, and Josef Gabczyk, these people all stood up. Pittsburgh and Poway have possibly changed forever American Jewish complacency as we confront the reality that those same forces of hatred exist today and that anti-Semitism is real here and throughout the world. Journalist and writer Barry Weiss calls contemporary hatred of Jews a three-headed dragon with serious threats coming from the extreme left, the extreme right and from fundamentalist Islam. Clearly we cannot ignore the threats, especially from white nationalists with stated violent manifestos and we know that there are groups right here. It's hard to ignore the FBI report of a 37% spike in anti-Jewish hate crimes in 2017 with almost 2,000 anti-Semitic incidents in both 2017 and 2018. I honor the work of our security team at Bonnet Shalom under the leadership of Yonatan Gold, who received a Homeland Security grant for $100,000 to keep us safe, including armed police presence at services and Hebrew school and other measures for our facilities security. This is our new normal, and we need to be realistic and vigilant. Of course, any of us who've been to synagogues in Europe have experienced airport-type security for years. Paris, Lyon, Marseille, Berlin, Istanbul, London, Brussels have all had attacks against Jews, and Jewish cemeteries all over Europe are regularly desecrated. In my native UK, 40% of the Jews there say they would consider leaving if Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn were elected Prime Minister, which is not outside the realm of possibility. The scandal of systemic anti-Semitism in the left-wing Labour Party, which has had many Jewish members for decades, has been so alarming for British Jews, especially progressives who have been displaced from their political home. Although my friend John, with whom I spent that day in Prague and who runs an organization that focuses on statistics, says that current research suggests that only about 2% of Brits hold dangerous, ideologically anti-Semitic views. Most of us reel at the calls from the left for BDS, total boycotts of Israel. We know that anti-Semitism is often thinly disguised as anti-Israel sentiments, and let's face it, for all of its challenges, where would we be as a people without the Jewish state? Progressive American Jews have been appalled and confused by alliances between leaders of the Women's March and the blatant anti-Semite Louis Farrakhan. And non-Jews who vote Democrat have now been accused of stupidity, disloyalty, or both. There are so many missing details in this bleak, rough sketch of contemporary reality. I'm concerned about some of our possible reactions in realigning ourselves with old tropes and narratives. They have always hated us and they always will. Nowhere is safe for Jews anymore. Those radical young Democrat socialists here in America all hate Israel and they hate the Jews. All Muslims and all Arabs want to drive us into the sea. I could go on and on with examples of how our fear and reactivated trauma can create these reactions that dismiss whole groups and nations as other, as enemy. That's so dangerous. 
In fact, the Tree of Life shooting in Pittsburgh showed something very different. Immediately after that attack, Muslims, Christians, the Pittsburgh Steelers, elected officials across the aisles, locally and nationally, all showed up in solidarity in the most extraordinary and moving ways. There were interfaith vigils all over the world, including the one I attended in London, attended by the Muslim Lord Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, who I sat next to, and others. It was the opposite of Kristallnacht on the streets of Berlin and other German cities where so many civilians participated in the acts of violence carried out against the Jews or watched as bystanders. So many Americans of all religions and cultures recognized profoundly that the attack on a synagogue on a Shabbat morning while Jews were at prayer was an attack on all of America and the values and the freedoms that we cherish. We all need to stand up in solidarity when any group is the target of hateful speech and hateful acts, just as so many of us in the Jewish community did by showing up to the Islamic center of Boulder after the horrifying shooting in New Zealand, and just as our Muslim brothers and sisters showed up to our vigils after Pittsburgh in, in the face of new threats from violent nationalists here and elsewhere who are undoubtedly being emboldened by those in power. We cannot retreat into our tribal caves and tweet out our defiance and outrage, our certainty that Poles, Czechs, Germans, Muslims, Palestinians, righties, lefties all hate us and we have to fight. Yes, there is awful bigotry and hatred in some of these groups. And there are also courageous, loving and good human beings who are ready to stand with us in solidarity as we must stand with them when it is our turn. When I visited Babi Yar, the ravine in the forest on the outskirts of Kiev in Ukraine, where 33,000 Jews were shot in two days in 1941, I was very struck by the very simple memorial there of a small stone with a few Hebrew words from Genesis chapter 4. Kol Damei Achicha Tzoakim Alai Min Ha'adama your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The words are God's rebuke of Cain after he murdered his brother Abel. So much blood cries out from the ground from the past few years. The blood of nine African-American brothers and sisters cries out as we remember the shooting in the AME church in Charleston. The blood of 51 Muslim brothers and sisters cries out as we remember those attacked at prayer in two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. The blood of 17 sisters and brothers in the LB LGBTQ community cries out with us as we remember the gay, lesbian and transgender murders over the past 12 months in the US. The blood of 22 brothers and sisters in the Latino community cries out after the murder this summer in El Paso, Texas. The blood of 12 Jewish sisters and brothers cries out from Pittsburgh and from Poway. Lo ta'amod al dam re'echa. Do not stand on the blood of your fellow. This prohibition from the book of Leviticus is often taken as the ethical principle not to stand idly by while blood is spilt. There's a lot of standing during Yom Kippur. We stand, as we say, the Vidui, confessing transgression, 
We stand when the ark is open with Torah scrolls shining their light and truth at us. And we need to stand up in our lives, standing in solidarity with others and standing up for ourselves and who we are. The week before Rosh Hashanah, we read from the Torah, Atem Nitzavim Hayom Kulchem. You are standing here today, all of you. Many Reform congregations read this passage on Yom Kippur. Hayom, today, here we stand, today. New York Times writer Barry Weiss published a book in September called How to Fight Anti-Semitism, in which she holds nothing back in presenting the realities past and present. But her strong conclusion is so important in its passionate assertion that positive identity, standing up, is more important than anything else. Weiss says, our history teaches us that those who rather than appealing and screaming choose to build, to educate towards cultural and national revival, to defy anti-Semitism, not with Jewish pleas and Jewish hand-wringing, but with Jewish learning, Jewish observance, Jewish strength and Jewish achievement. Such are those who bring our people's survival, salvation, a future. She continues, non-Jews respect Jews who respect Judaism and they are embarrassed by Jews who are embarrassed by Judaism. She quotes Rabbi Jonathan Sachs saying, what is more attractive than people confident in themselves, grateful for their historical legacy and proud of their culture? As a rabbi I've experienced this many times when I have been in a position to offer a Jewish voice, a Jewish prayer or ritual in a non-Jewish space, seeing the grateful way it is received. Recently, I blew the shofar in downtown Boulder at the climate strike and at Boulder City Council at the moving signing ceremony of Ramat HaNegev as our sister city. It was so moving to see the reactions. Yes, we know that there are sadly places where it just isn't safe to walk around the streets wearing a kippah a Magain David or other easily identifiable Jewish symbols. But generally, we need to stand up for who we are rather than hide. Yesterday I spoke about the transcendence of self and identity into a universal realm, but we also need the particular expressions of our Jewish souls. My friends, Yom Kippur can be a very heavy day with our communal accounting and confessing. And we live in a heavy time of history and who knows what 5780 and 2020 will bring, as well as the vulnerability of facing our own imperfection and mortality. We also have to face what is happening in our world. But let's acknowledge the transgression of all of those times we have had a negative, defensive, reactive Jewish identity rather than a positive one. For the sin we have committed before you, choosing shame rather than pride. We need to be strong advocates for the Jewish people, not just to be anti-anti-Semitism, not just standing in defiance, but in celebration, joy and dignity. Just as we at other times support and share other cultures and faith traditions, celebrating their own sacred gifts. Reb Zalman used to teach that Jew is a verb, to Jew. Some of us Jew every day, some Jew every week, 
Some Jew once a year. Let's Jew more this year. Take on a new practice. Light Shabbat candles every week if you don't already. Learn some Hebrew, a new prayer. Have a meal in a sukkah, shake a lulav. Dance with us on Simchat Torah or one of our musical Shabbat services. Come to a class, try Thursday morning minyan. Offer a ride to someone who can't get to services. Help serve food at community table. Learn about this rich, creative, dynamic tradition. Bonet Shalom is alive in its integration of tradition, creativity, depth and innovation. See yourself intimately woven into this Jewish story. Stand up. Barry Weiss says, in these trying times, our best strategy is to build without shame a Judaism and a Jewish people and a Jewish state that are not only safe and resilient, but that are self-aware, meaningful, generative, humane, joyful, and life-affirming. A Judaism capable of fight, lighting a fire in every Jewish soul and in the souls of everyone who throws in their lot with ours. Let's not forget the moral courage of Stauffenberg and the other German officers, the resistance of Jan Kubis and Josef Gobczyk and so many more, the Poles who risked their lives to hide and save Jews, the righteous among the nations, all who stood and stand up in solidarity, choosing love over hate, choosing life. Let's honour today's Poles and other Europeans who, in spite of despotic governments, are drawn to Jewish life and Jewish culture, to healing and reconciliation. Let's be safe and realistic, while at the same time forming alliances and being in solidarity with marginalized groups and people everywhere. Let's each find that beating heart of a vibrant Jewish life for us to stand up and be a part of continuing against all odds to tell this magnificent story. <laughs>